Welcome to the Dr. Raj podcast with Dr. Raj Dasgupta, a show all about educating patients, students, and aspiring doctors about better patient care. Dr. Raj is a quadruple board certified physician and associate professor at the University of Southern California. He was a co-host of the TNT series, Chasing the Cure with Ann Curry, as well as a regular on the TV show, The Doctors. And now, here's our show. Hi, so welcome to the Dr. Raj Show. So this is going to be a show not only about medicine, it's about a show about just being yourself, and we love talking about all parts of healthcare. But I want to actually do something that is actually near and dear to my heart, which is pulmonary. So we're going to have a awesome, awesome doctor today. And this is a doctor who focuses in on pulmonary medicine, especially something called pulmonary fibrosis. I'm not sure if anyone has heard of that before, but we definitely had the person to answer this. And his name is going to be Dr. Toby Marr. And let me say a few things about him. So uh, first off, I, I, I did a little research about you know, what he's done and his accomplishments. And he has written in so many of the most high-end, amazing medical journals, such as the New England Journal of Medicine, which is one of the things that's very near and dear to our hearts as, as doctors. And he really specializes, like I said, in pulmonary fibrosis. And the reason why I had him here is because, you know, he works with me here at USC. And when he was coming here, I'm telling you, I mean, it's almost like the Beatles were having a concert here. No one, everyone couldn't stop talking about him. Like, who is this guy, you know? And even my manager who works in my clinic, I don't think she, I used to be her favorite. And then, you know, Dr. Marr comes here and I'm just like, you know, I think she forgot about me. So I got a chance to know Dr. Marr and he is awesome. He is fun. And I think he'll just be amazing uh, for this podcast. So Dr. Toby Marr, thank you for joining us today. How are you doing? Hi, Raj. I'm doing well. Thank you for the introduction. Uh, I'm getting used to all the American hyperbole. Uh, <laughs> we're we're, we're more modest back in the UK, but thank you. <laughs> oh, you're very welcome, and thank you for being on our show today. So, you know, the first part of the show is always kind of like the getting to know you type questions. So we're definitely going to get to know you. And I, gotta, I, I just want to let you know I'm excited because I have some awesome, like, what do you do in England versus the U.S. question? So we're going to have a lot of fun with that. Are you excited? <laughs> I'm very excited. <laughs> okay. So let's start off with the basics. So uh, where did you go to college and what did you major in? Uh, so I went to college at Southampton University, which is on the south coast of England. Um, it's mostly cold and wet there, apart from a couple of weeks in the summer where it's sunnier. Uh, <laughs> Uh, unlike the US, we leave school and we go straight into medical school. So I didn't have a major. I just did medicine, uh, which meant that I, qual I qualified as a doctor age 22. Um, <clears throat> wow. Um, now, how, how, now, I didn't prepare for this question, but do you think, did you feel a little bit on the young side? I think I was still kind of uh, causing trouble when I was 22. I didn't think I was there yet mentally to prepare for medical school and I you know what about you did you feel overwhelmed by that or um and I think in retrospect like one realizes how young one was but at the time you know being an 18 year old going to the university you feel you feel like you're really grown up and mature so I I 
I think at the time it didn't strike me how young I was, but looking back, 22 does seem very young to be taking on the responsibilities of a doctor and being thrown into the deep end of dealing with life and death. And, you know, we certainly had a reputation in the UK as medical students of working hard and also partying very hard, which I think was the way of letting off steam. <laughs> now, so after you finished the medical, your medical school, so you went straight to residency. And I'm going to assume, did you choose, you went to internal medicine residency, correct? Uh, yes, I did. After medical school in the UK, you did, we did six months of general medicine and six months of surgery, and then we went into residency, so I did general internal medicine. So let me ask you, so why medicine? Did, did you not like your surgery rotation? Do you not like cutting people open? How did you choose medicine instead of surgery? Yeah, and I thought the idea of cutting people open every day for the rest of my life was just <laughs> a bit too monotonous. And I, I have to say, for me, what I've always enjoyed about medicine is the detective work of making a diagnosis and I guess it was it was more the the intellectual side of it that interested me rather than the practical hands-on doing. Um, that said, I think respiratory medicine is actually a nice balance because I do do some bronchoscopy. So, oh, I didn't even know I, that. Um, so, so let's say you finished your your medicine. You know, you had your training six months medicine and the surgery. Now, why the lungs in general? And, and you know, obviously, I'm a lung doctor myself. Like. You didn't like the heart. Is endocrine kind of boring? You don't like joints and rheumatology. What drew on you to talk about the lung itself? Yeah, and I, it's, it's always interesting when you go to different medical conferences and you meet with different groups of physicians, you realize there are different personalities within different disease areas. Cardiologists are different pulmonologists who are different to endocrinologists. So I do wonder if there is something just about being drawn to other similar personalities within a disease area. But I, I can give you a slightly more medical answer, which is I, I think respiratory medicine has a nice combination of um, challenges. We have good imaging, we have bronchoscopy, so we have some practical procedures. There's a range of, of problems going from chronic outpatient medicine all the way through to critical care. Um, you know, we deal with everything from infection with pneumonia and tuberculosis all the way through asthma and the interstitial lung diseases. So there's a huge variety as well. And I guess I was attracted to that mix of different components. So, you know, here, in, in I guess in the States, we combine pulmonary with critical care quite often. So is it the same way in England? And did you want to do critical care? Because I know you didn't pursue it. Did you think about it? Um, so historically in the UK, critical care was always run by anesthesiologists. Um, and it's only really in the last 10 years or so that, that pulmonologists have begun to take over the critical care space as they do a lot in the US. So it, when I started my pulmonary training, it wasn't such a big thing to do critical care. Um, I have to say, I think critical care medicine is a young man's game. I think the adrenaline <laughs> rush of, of being up all night looking after very sick people is something that uh, becomes exhausting as one gets older. Um, <laughs> so I, I, I don't miss not doing critical care. And, and, and I don't blame you. And, and you know our fellows, you pull, you, you pull all our fellows, they all oh, want to do critical care now. You just kind of nod your head and smile. Sure, buddy. Have a couple kids, get a little bit older, then the answer is <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Um, so let so let me so you said you do bronchoscopy. I didn't even know you did bronchoscopy. So I mean, um, I'm gonna ask some medical stuff. So are you pretty good with that bronchoscope? Are you doing some e-bus? Are you needling nodes and all that kind of stuff? Or are you just a standard bronchoscopist? What are you doing? I, I do very basic bronchoscopy. So for me, bronchoscopy is about doing bronchoalveolar lavage, which I do for either clinical purposes or have done for a lot of my research. So I'm, I'm very good at locating the right middle lobe, uh, wedging <laughs> my bronchoscope and flushing saline in and out. I would be lost if you asked me to find other lobes and I would be very <laughs> lost if you asked me to start doing EBA. So I, I keep it very simple. And for those who don't know what I'm asking the doctor, you know, bronchoscopy is one of the go-to procedures that we do as pulmonologists. It sounds like, you know, me and me and Toby are about the same skill level when it comes to a bronchoscope. So nothing to brag about over here. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, um, you know, if, if no one caught it just yet, you know, uh, I mean, Toby's from the UK, from England. Um, what do you think about you know, have, is this your first time hanging out with us here in the U.S.? Have you been here quite a bit? Um, is this your is this your inaugural trip? Uh, so yeah, I, I know I've traveled a lot to the U.S. in the last fifteen years, but this is my first time living here, so uh, it's been an eye-opening experience. And I'll save those specific questions for one moment, but. So I, I, I wrote this down because I got, just got to ask you, you know, I mean, I love that you're here. I love you're in wonderful Southern California. What about the timing of coming here? Now, did, did you and your wife have the talk like, you know, honey, it, it, COVID is pretty bad right now. They're kind of protesting all over the U.S. Is this the right time to have the move? Um, did, did it just work out that way? You're like, or you're like bad timing. What was your thought with all that? Yeah, no, it was bad timing. Uh, I, I, and I, I first came over um, and visited USC about 18 months ago, and it, it took a long time to get all the paperwork and everything sorted, and it just so happened that the timing coincided with COVID and everything else. So uh, I, I couldn't have done any worse. And May 2020 seemed like a good time to come, you know, early <laughs> start of the summer. It was going to be the chance to experience LA and everything that LA had to offer. <laughs> it's going to be a nice time to meet colleagues just before the American Society meeting. It was, it was timed perfectly and then, then COVID ruined everything. And, and, and don't forget, we introduced you to, uh, to wildfires here in Southern California also, you know? Yeah, I, and I have some spectacular pictures of uh, red skies at midday and, and things like that. So that, that's been eye-opening that, the, the politics, the presidential election in 2020 has been quite a year. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, you know, okay, before we go into, because of course, everyone wants me to ask you IP, uh, pulmonary fibrosis questions, but I got some fun questions for you, and I hope these make you smile a little bit. So here are some just generalized questions that I'm going to ask you, because I know you're from the UK and England, and I just want to know your answers, okay? So, Toby, are you a Beatles fan? I'm not quite that old, uh, so no, I never was really. I mean, bite your tongue! Oh my, you couldn't just lie, man. I love the Beatles, so <laughs> let me give you a negative point for that one, okay? So, <laughs> so well, no, this kind of leads to to my second question because you're younger. I'm using my fingers as air quotes. Are you an Oasis fan? Uh, I like Oasis. I know, I've, yeah, they 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 
peak hits in the 1990s were great. After that, they went downhill a lot, but uh, I'm a 1990s Oasis fan. Okay, I'm going to put you on the spot because uh, what is your favorite Oasis song? Uh, well, Wonderwall always brings back happy memories. It's not necessarily <laughs> their best song, but it brings back a lot of memories from, from medical school and everything associated with it. I, I, I agree. Those brothers, I think it's the Gallagher brothers, they, they, need, a, they need a little spanking because they're just always uh, causing trouble. And they, they, I think they're a great band too. And I'm a huge, huge Oasis fan. So what, what about, um, I think we joked about this together. How is, you know, in the UK, you, you drive on the opposite side than we do here in the States. So have you had that, that when you go to your car, are you always entering the wrong door? Are you like just kind of backwards about it? How did you adjust? Um, it's tricky. I have to remind myself always to start off on the correct side of the road. Um, and yes, I have, I have got in the passenger side a few times and then realized that I'm missing a steering wheel and gone around to the other side. Uh, it does take a bit of getting used to. <laughs> All right. And, um, now <laughs> I don't know if you know, uh, Nick, Toby, are you a movies guy? Do you, do you watch movies? Do you like movies at all? I'm not a great movie buff. I watch them occasionally on the airplane, but I'm not. Uh, don't don't ask me any detailed movie questions. So this was, uh, you know, I was uh, talking to some of our pulmonary fellows of what questions I was going to ask, and you know, they were playing off some of the jovial questions about being from the UK and England. So one of the questions was, if you don't get the reference, I'll explain it to you. When you when you go to McDonald's and uh, you're ordering your quarter pounder with cheese, do you sometimes accidentally ask for the Royale with cheese. Thank you. Maybe you could explain that one to me. <laughs> so, I mean, um, for our age, people, there's, there's a movie called Pulp Fiction. And uh, that was one of the jokes in the movie. And I thought it was kind of a cool, uh, you know, English reference. But um, <laughs> apparently it may not be as funny as it is for me and not really for you. But, uh, <laughs> but I, I just want to make sure I throw it out there. But, hey, we're, don't, don't be too sad. We're down to the last two questions uh, that, that uh, I kind of pulled everyone to find out what I'm going to ask you. So are you, <laughs> I can't even say it without laughing. Um, two things. Uh, are, are you a James Bond fan? Do, does everyone in, in London have a special place in their heart for James Bond? Yeah, I think, I think that's fair to say. Uh, who, who's your favorite? Very who's suave, your, very British. Who's your favorite actor? If you had to pick one, who's your favorite actor? Um, that's a good question. I, I, I grew up with Sean Connery being James Bond, so he's always seemed the most authentic. Um, and then the rest uh, have always been a slightly pale imitation after, after Sean Connery. You know, you, you kind of aged yourself with that answer, but wow. All right. <laughs> <laughs> too, too young for the Beatles, but old enough for Sean Connery. Yeah, I kind of like that. I kind of like that. Quite a bit. You know, um, I would say, so I'm going to age myself. So I kind of grew up during the Roger Moore area. So I kind of like that whole Spy Who Loved Me, Moonraker stuff. But uh, all right, Sean Connery. I, I love that. So... All right. So finally, here's the moment. We're going to go back to medicine right now. So, you know, you know, a lot of people are not familiar with what pulmonary fibrosis is. So in, in layman's terms, you're not giving a lecture to me or the fellows right now. Um, can you just explain what is pulmonary fibrosis and to, to someone who asks and when would you suspect it? 
Um, so uh, pulmonary fibrosis is a scarring disorder of the lungs. So pulmonary is lungs, fibrosis is scar tissue. It, it, the same scar tissue that you get in the skin, you can get occurring in the lungs following you know, various sorts of chronic damage. Um, and the commonest form, idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, is a disease that, that tends to occur in, in older age. So typically people in their 60s, 70s, or 80s. And, and the way I look at it is that it's sort of the lung equivalent of Alzheimer's disease. It's the lungs sort of wearing out ahead of time and ahead of the rest of the body. Um, and it, it I, and essentially the, the symptom, the most common symptom it causes is breathlessness. Initially, just breathlessness when sort of exerting oneself, but as it gets more severe, it makes people breathless at rest. So how would, you know, when, is this a disease that's underdiagnosed or misdiagnosed? And for the people listening, Toby, how would you, when would you have them kind of be seen for an eval or to be evaluated for it? What would you recommend? Um, so it's certainly, it's under-recognized. It often takes a long time for patients to be correctly diagnosed and often as long as 12 to 18 months. Um, you know, I, I think there's a number of factors in that. I, I think when you're in your 60s and 70s, people often put down breathlessness to getting old, and so they'll, they'll tend to ignore the symptoms for quite a while. And then when they do go and see their primary care physician, often they'll be investigated for, for, for more common conditions such as cardiac disease or or perhaps COPD or emphysema first. So people tend to go through this loop of delaying seeing the doctor and the first before it dawns on people, this is something different. And I, I guess the, from my point of view, that the sort of the giveaway key to the symptoms is that the, the breathlessness tends to get progressively worse over a relatively short period of time. So if patients are noticing they're increasingly struggling with exercise over a six or 12 month period, it makes it much more likely to be pulmonary fibrosis than other things that can cause breathlessness in that age group. So you mentioned something very interesting. You said cardiac disease, and then we're talking about pulmonary fibrosis. And for some people, they seem like two opposite things. Are you saying that there's kind of a, an overlap of symptoms and sometimes they get confused for one another? Is that what, I'm not putting words in your mouth. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, and I think for two reasons. I'm, although you know the heart and the lungs are separate organs, mm -hmm. the, the symptoms that heart disease and lung disease can cause overlaps, and, and both heart and lung disease can cause breathlessness. Um, but the other reason it gets confused is, is because the key thing that, that we can find on examination as doctors, when you listen to the bottom of the lungs, in patients with pulmonary fibrosis, you tend to hear what we describe as crackles, which sort of sounds like Velcro being pulled apart. <laughs> okay. patients, patients who've got heart disease, as you know, um, if they've got any fluid on their lungs, they can also have crackles. Um, I think to the experienced ear, you can tell the difference between the two sorts of crackles, but for inexperienced physicians listening to the base of the lungs, it's often difficult to distinguish between crackles related to cardiac disease and crackles related to pulmonary fibrosis. Mm. And I think that's where some of the confusion arises. 
So in your experience, and you've seen a lot of patients, what is the typical um, symptoms that they complain about or mention to you that makes you say, wait a minute, I think we need to evaluate for pulmonary fibrosis? Yeah, so I think it's the, the combination. So generally speaking, it'll be the combination of breathlessness that's been getting worse over a relatively short period of time. Uh-huh. Um, often there'll be an associated dry cough with a tendency okay. to expectorate some clear sputum in the mornings. Um, and the other telltale sign is, is when you get finger clubbing, so the change in the shape of the, the fingernail bed so that the, the finger becomes curved and begins to look a bit like a drumstick. Um, oh, boy. If you see that happening, then that, that's almost the full set, the cough, the breathlessness, and the clubbing, and that, that almost makes the diagnosis easy. Um, but as you'll know, only about half the patients end up with the finger clubbing, so it's not not an absolutely reliable sign. So this kind of like goes right into my next question. So let's say you do you hear the right crackles, you do see this clubbing on the fingernails, all the things you just mentioned. So now you want to make the diagnosis of this pulmonary fibrosis. Well, what's how do you do that? How, what what is your flow chart? What is your recipe to make? the right diagnosis in these patients? Um, yeah, so the key diagnostic test is really the high-resolution CT scan. Um, once you've got a CT scan in the majority of patients, you can tell based on the pattern of abnormality in the lungs that the diagnosis is idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis. Um, in a small proportion of patients, either because the disease is so early on and the, the pattern on CT is is difficult to distinguish or because occasionally we see some unusual CT patterns, it's necessary to do a biopsy. Um, but probably 95% of the time, one can make the diagnosis on the CT alone. Well, let me ask you this, because I'm sure if I was just you know a patient going in and I had some of these symptoms we talked about, I mean, because you're the pro at this, you're going for the CT. What about is there a role for a chest x-ray? I mean, do you get it sometimes just in case or are we at the point right now in year 2020 that if you suspect it, that rapid progression of shortness of breath, the age, the physical exam, you go straight to CT? Um, yeah, so if they're coming to see me and I, I, I've got access to a CT, if I've heard those crackles, I'm just going to go straight for a CT because I'm going to make the diagnosis on the scan. I, I think it, if you take a step back and you put yourself in the shoes of the primary care physician and you're not quite sure whether the symptoms that the patient is telling you about are clinically relevant or whether you're not quite sure when you listen through the stethoscope that you're hearing crackles, then the, the chest x-ray is a reasonable screening test. It won't make the diagnosis, but it'll tell you if there's a problem there that needs further investigation. Now, I, you know, I promised myself I was going to ask, you know, super dorky medical questions, but I just got to know in general, you know, we're talking about diagnosis and are, were you excited because, you know, people like us get excited over weird guidelines, you know, <laughs> when the Fleischner Society guidelines came out in 2017 that said, you know what, you can make this diagnosis of pulmonary fibrosis based on imaging. You don't have to get tissue all the time, you know. Was, was, that, was that like a, a joyous moment for you? Were you happy for the patients? Yeah, and I think it's important because, um, I, I, you know, historically there's been a tendency to do surgical lung biopsies on these patients. And 
you know, surgical lung biopsy is done under general anesthetic. You're having tubes shoved into the chest. Um, it, it requires somewhere between two and four days in hospital. And it, it's, you know, generally speaking, it's a safe procedure, but there are definite risks that go alongside it. Um, and, and those risks include death. So I, I think you know, <laughs> yeah. anything we can, yeah, anything we can do to avoid subjecting our patients to unnecessary risk, and not just the risk of death, but also you know pain, discomfort that lasts for several weeks, um, is important. And I, I think the Fleischner guidelines reflect that really over the last ten years we've got much better at interpreting CT scans, and that we can increasingly rely on those to make the diagnosis and and whilst i think for sort of experts in the field we were already at that point i think having something like Fleischner guidelines provides reassurance to sort of non-specialist physicians that actually you're not mandated to do a biopsy it is perfectly reasonable to make a diagnosis from ct scan uh, when you've had the opportunity to discuss those images with a, an appropriately trained thoracic radiologist no, and you know, I just I want to make sure I, I talk a little bit about some treatment things. So, I remember, you know, when I was deciding to subspecialize, you know, I did a pulmonary rotation, you know, during my residency, and during that time, when you'd have this what we call interstitial lung disease clinic, and you would see these pulmonary fibrosis patients, I mean, it was pretty depressing. I mean, at that time, we didn't really have anything to offer, and it was so sad. I almost didn't want to go into pulmonary because, I mean, I didn't feel I could contribute. So let me ask you this. You know, you are the guru in this field. In the year 2020, do you think we've, are, are we on the right track now to helping these patients? Because people listening to this will be like, cool, you talked about symptoms and diagnosis. I don't need a biopsy anymore. What can you do for me? Are, are, are we doing good things, Toby? Can we help these people out? So yes, is the short answer. Um, I, and I think we've, we've come a long way in the last decade. So when I started my attending job in London um, 12 years ago, we were still using treatment with prednisone nasothioprin. And we thought that was beneficial. The guidelines recommended that as first-line treatment for patients with IPF. And we've subsequently seen in randomized controlled trials that actually that treatment is harmful for patients. So the first important thing we did was to stop harming patients by giving drugs that had historically been used without any clinical trial evidence. It's always a, an important lesson in, in ensuring <laughs> evidence-based practice. It sounds, like, um, sounds like, it sounds like COVID a little bit there, Toby. <laughs> it, it does. You know, you know, it, it, as doctors, we do have this nasty habit of wanting to do something when sometimes doing nothing is better. <laughs> exactly. Um, and, and yeah, we, we keep relearning that lesson over and over. Um, but yeah, having stopped doing harm, we've then seen the advent of antifibrotic treatment with pethenidone and tetanib. We've seen increasing expansion of the use of those treatments away from not, not just idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, but for other forms of fibrotic lung disease. Um, and then with my research, I'm heavily involved in lots and lots of clinical trials. But at the moment, there's more than 20 different drugs being tested at various phases of clinical trials around the world for IPF. And, you know, not all of those are going to work, but 
even if our success rate is only 10 or 20 percent, that means somewhere between two or four new drugs coming through in the next few years. So I'm, I'm really optimistic that, that we're on the right road to, to completely changing outcomes for patients with pulmonary fibrosis. No, and, and, and that is amazing. You know, and I think that for some people, I mean, you definitely cash in on some medical words, you know, nitinib and profinidone and all of these things are, are what we call these anti-fibrotic meds, everyone. Now, Toby, let me ask you this. I mean, I've used uh, both of these meds on my patients and they always seem to be very upset at me and they always call back and say, I'm, I, I just am a, a mean person because they're always having diarrhea and stuff and they don't even feel better. Are you getting the same response, and how, how do you address doing the right thing when the patients are mad at you? <laughs> <laughs> it's all about how you, uh, how you sell the drugs up front, I think. Um, so I, I, and I think you, know, you hit on one of the challenges, which is to say that our treatments at the moment don't improve the situation. Um, and essentially what we're trying to do is modify outcomes in a chronic progressive disease so without treatment ipf will inevitably get worse um, and almost everyone with the disease will die of respiratory failure um, what we're trying to do with the antifibrotic drugs is ideally prevent that progression but at least to slow it down and what that means in a practical sense is that when we give these drugs, we're not giving them in the anticipation that our patients are going to come back and say, I feel great, my breathlessness is completely better. What we're hoping they'll say is, well, actually, I feel exactly the same as when I last saw you. And that, that constitutes success. So I, I think the first important thing is to communicate that to the patient. If they leave the office with your script thinking, great, I'm going to feel better in a couple of weeks' time, then they're set up for disappointment if they leave understanding that yeah if they leave understanding that the goal is to keep them stable then you you've sort of set their expectation at the right level and then you allude to the other challenge which is of course the side effect profile um, so whilst these drugs do represent a clear step change in our ability to treat pulmonary fibrosis they do come with the downside of an appreciable number of of side effects in a significant minority of patients. Um, but I think our experience has been that, you know, a lot of the side effects can be avoided by behavior modification. So profenadone, for instance, can cause a photosensitive rash, so a rash in the sunshine. We've got a lot better at controlling that by advising patients to use sunblock. Similarly, or, the, the or maybe don't don't live in Southern California where it's beautiful weather all the time. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm not going to advocate that. Having come from London to sunny California, I'm certainly not going to advocate that people live back in rainy places. Um, and, um, and believe it or not, we did see photosensitive rash in London as well. Oh, um, all right. Let me ask you this: kind of like cascading off, you know what I mean. I don't know when you were practicing in London if you had access to, you know, transplant for the lungs. And one thing I, I am really proud of about being at USC is that we are a transplant center and we do have some awesome surgeons and doctors here. Um, is this exciting uh, that you are in a center that offers transplant and evaluates for transplant? Were you involved with that in the past? And do you think that uh, because of all the new things you're researching and the drugs you already mentioned, are we going to be seeing less transplant? Any take on that? Um, so, yeah, I've been involved in the past. I worked so 
Harefield Hospital, which was actually one of the pioneering centres for transplant, was connected to our hospital. So we had access to a large transplant centre. Um, and I, I think, you know, it's always very salutary to look at the figures for lung transplant compared to other organ transplants. And I think the, the reality is that lung transplant is the least good of all the solid organ transplants. That's not to say it's not an important therapeutic option for some of our patients, but it's not like renal transplant where, you know, patients can have a transplant and almost go back to being completely normal individuals. With a lung transplant, the level of immunosuppression is higher, the risk of infection is higher, the risk of rejection is higher than it is with all these other solid organ transplants. And so I think really for the future would be to never need to do lung transplants. Um, so it's great that USC has a lung transplant program. Realistically, lung transplants are going to remain an important therapeutic option for the foreseeable future. But the more patients that I can prevent ever needing a transplant, the better from my perspective, because I, I think success would be to manage disease medically rather than go down the route of transplant unless we really need to. No, amen to that. That is a, a wonderful answer. And, you know, I have, you made it almost, Toby. This is my, my, my last question. You, you've, been, you've been one of my, my, my favorite guests so far, so keep it up, okay? <laughs> so my question to you is, um, I mean, your passion for, you know, when we first introduced you on the show, we said you went into internal medicine and pulmonary now, hopefully everyone understands <laughs> your passion is IPF. So um, why pulmonary fibrosis of all the things you could have picked, asthma is a hot topic, cystic fibrosis, you know what I mean? And, and not only do you do um, clinical work like I do, you do a lot of research, and I got to tell you that you, you got to be a special person to do research because it's not for everyone. And so, how did you? Get, why did you pick pulmonary fibrosis? And what is your passion for the research side of it? Also, so if you could answer it in a way that the fellows are going to be listening to this, the residents. I mean, how did you choose that? A bit of an accident, in so much as uh, I, I pulmonology job at the Royal Brompton Hospital, um, and I was supposed to the critical care rotation but a month before I got phoned up by the person who ran the rotation to say that um, because of some staff changes they'd shifted me from the critical care rotation to do uh, interstitial lung disease which at the time was something completely unknown to me so uh, having had a small tantrum about the fact that I wasn't doing critical care I turned up and did interstitial lung disease and sort of fell in love with the area um, and I, you know, I, I think it comes back to everything I said about pulmonary uh, I'm, and the detective work. I'm interstitial lung disease. One of the intriguing aspects is is the detective work of trying to work out the diagnosis. And you know, we combine imaging, we do bronchoscopy, we do all the things that I think are good about respiratory medicine within interstitial lung disease. And then also, it was exciting that there were so many unknowns. At the time, you know, there were a lot of people doing research in asthma. There was, you know, there are still unknowns in asthma and COPD, but they felt to be far fewer. Whereas when I started in ILD as a resident, it was back in 2001, which is the year the first guidelines were published. And really, we knew next to nothing about the CT appearances. We knew next 
nothing about the natural history of the disease. And there were certainly no treatments and very few clinical trials. And it just seemed that there was some. And, you know, what's been great with my career is that I've timed my run perfectly because just as I completed my PhD, uh, looking at basic mechanisms in IPF, the whole world suddenly seemed to become interested in pulmonary fibrosis. Um, and, you know, I, I wouldn't have imagined when I did my PhD and you had sort of 20 people in a, a huge lecture hall at ATS listening to pulmonary fibrosis that, that 10, 15 years later, you'd be filling lecture halls with thousands of people very keen to know about ILD and pulmonary fibrosis and who would have known that it would have taken me from my little hospital in London to be working in in Los Angeles uh, you know <laughs> home of home of the Hollywood stars and everything that goes with it so it, it's been a it's been lucky serendipitous and an exciting journey so far and I'm, I'm looking forward to, to carrying on the work with you guys at USC Oh, well, I will say this, you know, you know, Toby, it truly is an honor. And, and, you know, for everyone who doesn't know who you are, I know who you are now. You are really, (laughs) you are amazing in the field. You've done amazing things. And it's such a treat that my audience can hear someone who's a specialist of a specialist in such a a disease that really needs help. And um, now be honest, Toby, did you have fun today during this podcast? I was expecting to have have fun, and you didn't disappoint me. <laughs> so, do you, do you think one day we could get our wife together, and maybe for Valentine's Day we could watch Love Actually? <laughs> <laughs> I've seen it. I've seen it too many times. So no. <laughs> <laughs> well, hey, Toby, thank you so much. And you know that this is not going to be the last interview. When new data comes out, I'm going to bug you again to come on the show. Is that okay? That's fine. Always happy to talk about pulmonary fibrosis. You got it, bud. Anyways, take care and um, have a great day. Okay, bud. Awesome. Thanks. Thank you. Bye. You're, you're welcome. Goodbye. Thanks for listening. This has been a production of Ars Longa Media. The producers for this show are Christopher Breitigan and Madison Linden. The executive producer is Dr. Patrick Beeman. This podcast is for educational purposes only and not intended for medical advice. Ars Longa, Vita Brevis. <laughs>